Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Khan, founder of Being Patient. Today, we are going to have um, with us Dr. Dale Bredesen. He is the author of a New York Times bestselling um, book called The End of Alzheimer's. He's also uh, created something called The Bredesen Protocol, which focuses on lifestyle and um, how to address the prevention and treatment of Alzheimer's um, through a lot of lifestyle changes. Dr. Bredesen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Deborah. So let's just start with the, that term, the end of Alzheimer's. I mean, it's, it's quite a bold statement to make in today's world. What exactly do you mean when you say the end of Alzheimer's? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me first clarify, that is a title that came from the publisher, not from me. So the title of the one I wrote was called Wits End. And the idea was that that was both about what the research was doing. It was kind of at our wits end to figure out what was going on. And it was also what's happening to your brain when you have Alzheimer's. This was actually a title suggested by my wife, Dr. Aida Lachine Bredesen. So I thanked her and said, I love that title. I'm gonna submit that. And I submitted 10 others, by the way. They were all declined and it became the end of Alzheimer's. Now, having said that, I understand why they put that together. And the reality is this, which is now the third leading cause of death in the United States, as Dr. Christine Yaffe and her team pointed out a few years ago with epidemiological studies, uh, this should be a rare disease. And that's, you know, people have unfortunately not picked up on that yet. Yes, if we all had appropriate prevention and early reversal, which we're seeing time and time again. And yes, we see some people who are later on uh, who improve, but it's actually quite straightforward for the people who are early in the earliest stages. And so prevention and early reversal are the keys, and we really could make this a rare disease. This should be a past scourge, just as polio is, just as TB is, just as leprosy is. So I want to address, I mean, I, we're going to get into the specifics of the protocol um, and, and some of the work that you're doing. But first, I want to talk about the cause of Alzheimer's, because as you know, um, recently we've seen a lot of later stage trials canceled um, with pharma. Um, and I wanted to address, like, what do you think? Do we actually know what causes Alzheimer's today? Because in the scientific world, that's even being debated. Right. So as you know, the current status quo is that people, all the experts will tell you, we don't know the cause of Alzheimer's. And that's an interesting statement because it's a singular statement, the cause. Who, to, who said it's gonna be one cause? And I think that this is where there's a big and fundamental point being missed. Alzheimer's is one of the complex chronic illnesses. A hundred years ago, most of us died of simple illnesses like pneumococcal pneumonia and TB. And of course, the great success of 20th century medicine was developing appropriate public health measures and appropriate antibiotics to make it so that we could treat effectively those simple diseases. However, in the 21st century, the vast majority of us are dying from complex chronic illnesses, such as cardiovascular disease and type two diabetes, and Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative conditions and cancer. These are all multifactorial. That's a fundamental difference. So when people have gone after this in the same way they went after the pneumococcus with looking at one drug, one drug, one drug, and looking at the cause, the cause, this is like using your checker strategy for a chess match. It doesn't work and we've seen that, proven it with billions and billions of dollars of pharmaceutical trials, over 400 in Alzheimer's. So in fact, there is, it's not the same, the, it's not the same kind of disease. It's not that there is one cause of Alzheimer's, at least as far as we know today. What we see is that there are dozens of contributors. Insulin resistance is an important contributor. Specific oral bacteria such as P. gingivalis enter the brain and they are important contributors. Specific molds and their toxins, important contributors, specific viruses, herpes simplex one, HHV6A, and others. These are important contributors. So again, the idea that you're searching for the one cause is actually a misunderstanding. We spent 30 years in laboratory research looking at what actually drives the process of neurodegeneration. And when you look at that, what you see is that there are these many different causes. And this is why we tell people, imagine you have a roof 
with 36 holes in it. And in fact, a, a drug is a really good patch for one hole. But you're now going to want to use that drug on the backbone of other things. And you mentioned lifestyle, but it's far more than that. All we are saying is something very simple. We must target what is causing the problem in each individual. And no surprise, it's a little different. In one person, it may be mostly uh, specific inflammatory processes from a leaky gut. By the way, when we evaluate this in people, we've never seen a single person in which there were fewer than 10 contributors who had cognitive decline. So we want to look early. We want to identify all the different things. There are pathogens, and we can talk about those. We could, there are specific toxins. We can talk about those. There are specific changes in metabolism. We can talk about those. Of course, there are genetic uh, changes. Everyone's a little different genetically, of course. So you have to look at all these different things. And then so far, at least, the best outcomes have been with targeting those things that are actually causing the decline. So would you describe it? I've heard it. Um, I've heard um, many research, several researchers. I think this is becoming a more acceptable um, hypothesis that we um, Alzheimer's will be treated much like HIV, where it's not just one magic pill, but um, many things that you're treating at one time. So is that a good way to describe it? Yes. Although remember that HIV is actually quite simple. It's just one virus. So this is H but as you said, even with that, you needed three drugs to have a big impact. Imagine you know, HIV times 10. So we're looking at the various things that actually contribute to this problem. Ultimately, Alzheimer's disease is a protective response of your brain to numerous insults. So if we're going to treat it and prevent it most effectively, we're going to have to determine for each person what are the insults that it's protecting itself from, and then look at rebuilding what has been lost so far. So that's the approach we've taken, and we've published unprecedented improvements with that approach. Okay, let's start though. Um, let let's start at the um, in your book. You you mention four things that um, uh, contribute to the, the production of amyloid in the brain. Um, addressing those things first and foremost, um, what are some of those things? Describe to me um, what we know that contributes to that production and how we can stop um, the dangerous part of that process to our brains. Right, so what we said in the book was that there are actually subtypes of Alzheimer's so we see some people in which the predominant cause or the predominant contributor is inflammation. And then you have to find out from what? It may be from oral bacteria. It may be from chronic viral infections. It may be from various molds or fungi. It may be from spirochetes. There are all sorts of things, as you know. It may be from a poor American diet. All of these things are associated with chronic inflammation. And you can literally trace the molecular pathways when you activate inflammation in fact, one of the things that get, gets activated as a simple example is called NF-kappa B. It's a, a transcription factor. And this particular thing has effects on numerous genes, including, by the way, the ones that cause, that, that bring about, that produce amyloid. And so you can literally trace the pathway from inflammation to the production of amyloid. And in fact, it's turned out, as you know, amyloid is turning out to be a part of the innate immune system. It's part of your response to an insult. So that's type one. And then- So, Corey, can I just interrupt you there to ask, so is it correct to think that we, we need amyloid to a certain extent, we just don't wanna really reach a tipping point? Is that a good way to describe it? So that's a really interesting point. Of course, we've always vilified amyloid as, you know, if we can just get rid of this bad guy, then everything's going to be fine. Well, of course, it's billions of dollars. Black, so speak, right? And we've said we're going to get rid of that amyloid. And so far, as you know, all of those trials have failed. So in fact, the amyloid, it's not that it's good or bad. It's both. It's, it's playing a role. And yes, in a sense, as I said, it's a, it's a response to an insult. It is a scorched earth retreat. So you are essentially deciding, am I going to put my resources into growth and maintenance, which is what you do when you're not being insulted, or am I going to put my resources into protection uh, and, and defense? And that's, of course, what you're doing when things are bad. So amyloid, in that sense, is a little bit like napalm. 
if someone's coming across your borders, you're trying to get, you know, you're trying to deal with them, you might use this. But in so doing, you are now living in a small, less arable soil, smaller country. So you are literally downsizing. And that's what's happening with this. So it's not that it's good or bad. It's it's a response. So do you believe that, I mean, you know, we, we know the presumed progression of Alzheimer's starts with the plaques, then tangles, inflammation, um, and it's believed that when you reach that inflammatory state, that's when things start to degenerate in your brain. Do you believe that if we, we, we stop inflammation, then perhaps we're not going to see a symptom of Alzheimer's disease? I don't believe that, no. So here's the thing, it doesn't start with the plaques and tangles, that's the problem. It actually starts with the insults that lead to the plaques and tangles. So we want to identify those. And unfortunately, people evaluating Alzheimer's in the clinic haven't been looking for that. They're looking for getting rid of amyloid or getting rid of tau. There's this idea we're gonna get one drug and target these, and you know, I hope it works sometime and maybe it will, but that's not, the way biologically that this disease works. You start with these various insults, as I mentioned, and those induce your system to produce the amyloid. Now, the good news is, as you indicated, you can live for a long time with amyloid. And this is why people typically get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's about 20 years after you can see the very beginning of the pathophysiology. So of course, we wanna catch it as early as possible. And ultimately, yes, once you have the amyloid, the amyloid is essentially coating. It is an antimicrobial, as professors Robert Moyer and Rudy Tanzi from Harvard showed a number of years ago and have continued to show with additional experiments. This is a very nice antimicrobial. Again, it is part of your evolutionarily older, the innate immune system, which is essentially the non-targeted immune system, as opposed to your T cells and B cells, which are targeting specific antigens. So this is part of your older immune system. And so yeah, when you get, as you said, you now begin to have inflammation, you are essentially dealing with these pathogens. You're initially co literally coating them with amyloid um, and it's a nice antimicrobial, but ultimately you're now bringing in cytokines and microglia and other things. And you're right that that does seem to correspond to symptom onset. But again, the idea that you would just prevent the response and now everything will be okay. It's like saying, if we just fire our CFO, we can spend whatever we want. Well, yeah, for a short time, that's fine, but that doesn't work as a long-term strategy. And similarly, when we see people start removing their amyloid, what happens? They can get worse. So um, we're getting some questions in right now um, and specifically people wanna know what targets, what are the exact targets? How do you control that? What do we need to monitor in order to prevent? That is a great question. And as you know, I discussed that extensively in the book, um, but let me give you some examples. So these are various pathogens. So you get infected, for example, uh, here's a simple example. Uh, a wonderful study out of Taiwan studying thousands and thousands of people who had recurrent outbreaks of herpes on the lip. And those who were treated for their outbreaks uh, versus those who were not treated for their outbreaks. Those who were treated for their outbreaks had a dramatic reduction of about 60% in their risk for dementia. So one of the things is chronic infection with various herpes family viruses. And HHV-6, as you know, has come up recently. HHV-6A has come up recently uh, in a beautiful study published about a year ago by Dr. Dudley and his colleagues. Uh, so that's another one. And then- Wait, so just to interrupt you for a second there. So the herpes virus though, we've heard a lot about herpes. We've talked about herpes. There's not really a cure for herpes. So are you talking about like treating it in terms of taking drugs that suppress the virus? Um, is, that, is that what you mean by treating? Yeah, so in this case, what you wanna do is both treat to prevent outbreaks, minimize the outbreaks, and enhance the support of your own immune system. And of course, what causes those outbreaks? Typically it's stress. So you wanna minimize that. So again, for all of these things, we have to stop thinking in terms of problem, drug, problem, drug. It's humans are complex. They have a set of things that can include viruses, can include their outbreaks, all these things. And we want to tweak in a program, a personalized program for each person, and that's the the, the algorithm that we've written uh, and published 
where you're looking at specific pathogens, et cetera. So yes, in the simple case of herpes as being one of the contributors, then yes, you want to look at drugs, you want to look at prevention of outbreaks, you want to look at, uh, at now increasing the support, in this case, of your cellular immune system, which is the most important for viruses. And you can literally go down the list. A very common, as you know, in the United States, metabolic syndrome. Uh, there are about 80 million Americans who have at least parts of metabolic syndrome, such as insulin resistance, incredibly common. And of course, you know, there's an obesity epidemic. These things are risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. Insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, obesity, all of the above are risk factors. So of course, we want to address that. And part of the program that we've been using is to create insulin sensitivity to get rid of metabolic syndrome, to get rid of any type two diabetes or pre-diabetes. And that is another important thing to do because again, you're responding in a way, remember that insulin is, a, is an important trophic factor for neurons. So when you have insulin resistance, you are responding in a way that is pro-Alzheimer's, unfortunately. So, so, yeah, so to address that. that though, we would monitor our A1C levels to understand if we're at a pre-diabetic level. Is that what we could do as individuals? Um, that's the third most sensitive. So the most sensitive thing to do is to have an oral glucose tolerance test with insulin levels. So that you're actually looking to see when I am challenged with some simple carbohydrate, does my insulin go off the charts? And in fact, one of the things, again, suggested by my wife, the integrated physician, and I think she had a great idea, is to use continuous glucose monitoring because it really teaches you what are the things that are spiking my glucose. This is some patch you wear on your arm for two weeks. It's very easy. And you can see when your glucose spikes up. And you can also, by the way, see if you happen to get hypoglycemic while you're sleeping, which is, which is not helping you if you are. And many people are. And so that's another way to look at this. Then, as I mentioned, the most sensitive look at the insulin that's coming out when you get a, a challenge. The second most sensitive is just do a, a fasting insulin. And then the third most sensitive is what you said, the, the hemoglobin A1C. So yes, you can do those and you can start to see if you are now approaching prediabetes, if your hemoglobin A1C is 5.7% or higher, you are in the prediabetic range uh, and then, you know, once you get up to 6.4, you're in the diabetic range. Uh, so you now are beginning to enter uh, type 2 diabetes typically, and you want to address that. It turns out to be very important for your brain function. So that's, yes, that is another one of the dozens of insults that we look at. Then there are specific toxins. And again, the, the problem here is that you don't know that you have these various things until you start to have cognitive decline. So at the very worst, if you don't get on prevention, at least get on early reversal because that's that's been very successful. So you want to know where you stand with your organic mercury and with your inorganic mercury. You want to know where you stand with your dental amalgams. You want to know where you stand with your periodontitis. If you have periodontitis, you are increasing your risk for systemic inflammation. And in fact, uh, when you look at the brains of patients with Alzheimer's, what do you find? You find oral bacteria, P. gingivalis, F. nucleatum, T. denticola, others as well. And you find various molds, you find spirochetes, things like that. So in fact, you want to know if these things are giving you risk for Alzheimer's. Um, then also you want to know, and the thing that's rarely checked by people, but it's absolutely critical. You want to know if when you are sleeping at night, you are having oxygen desaturation. And typically we think of the, of the tip of the iceberg there, we say, oh yeah, someone had sleep apnea. That's great, okay, important to know. But there are a lot of people who don't necessarily fulfill the criteria for sleep apnea, who nevertheless have oxygen desaturation at night. If that's the case, that is a likely contributor to your cognitive decline. And something, by the way, that's easily treatable. So we want to look at these various insults, toxins, pathogens, inflammagens, metabolic abnormalities, oxygenation changes, all of these things, identify them and target them optimally for each person. We don't want you to be in the low end of normal. We want you to be in the optimal level. So for example, you know, there's a lot of work showing that homocysteine considered to be quote normal up until 12, but anything over six 
is associated with cerebral atrophy. And that's some beautiful work out of the UK showing that in fact, if you treat that, if you bring the homocysteine down to where it should be, to an optimal level, not just no, within normal limits, in fact, you do better. So I have to admit, I had um, seen a previous interview where you were talking about homocysteine and I went back to some of my medical records saying, mm, I wonder if I've ever tested for homocysteine and I found it in a blood report. And, you know, I was in the range, but I said, I think you said anything over six, right? Or something um, right. put you in. And I, I think my level was at about 10, which was still the normal range. But yet you said um, in, in a previous interview that, you know, it puts you more at risk for brain atrophy, is that correct? You can literally put on a scale, you can look at how rapidly your brain atrophies with age versus your homocysteine, and it's a straight line. And this is what the group showed in their research. And when they, interestingly, when they, they then re, re, uh, reduced it, um, and you can do that with you know, methyl B12, methylfolate, uh, and uh, P5P, which is a B6, uh, uh, active form of B6, um, this is what they did. They showed that this now, people who are now undergoing this atrophy, it just flattened out. So in fact, there is a relationship between your homocysteine and brain atrophy as shown by the research. What exactly is homocysteine? Yeah, so homocysteine is actually an amino acid. It is a, it's not one of the 20 that we always think of. It's a derivative of methionine. And it's one that literally is cycling. Um, and it interacts with methylation pathways. It interacts with detox pathways. It interacts actually with uh, DNA uh, production pathways, DNA synthesis pathways. So it, it does a number of things. And so you have a, a cycle that's going around all the time. And in fact, if you're stuck with this homocysteine, which unfortunately has a number of toxic effects at glutamate synapses, it's got effects on inflammation, it's got effects um, on, uh, on, on blood and on atherosclerosis, uh, on and on. So unfortunately it has a number of effects. Uh, you, you want to keep that down because it's something that is, it's doing its job, but unfortunately it's building up and not really being where it should be. So, you know, you identify in your book, the 36 holes in the roof, you refer to it. It's mm -hmm. these, these deficiencies or things that we should monitor. Um, but realistically, I, I have to say, um, it's a lot, right? And a lot of it is changing habits um, in lifestyle, on the lifestyle side, it's changing yeah. diet or habits or um, monitoring and um, supplements, uh, taking supplements. Um, it's a lot. And um, yeah. most people um, may not have the money to do this, right? Because I, I, I'm assuming a lot of this to get tested is not covered by your insurance. Um, what you're hitting on is more of a precision um, medicine model where we're looking at the whole picture and we're gonna treat the whole picture. Yeah, that's a very good point actually. And so, yeah, we are of course working to get this to be part of insurance. We're working for people to get this more and more easily. We now have a way you can actually get direct to consumer testing uh, so that's, you know, that's easier, essentially my cognoscopy. So the idea is, you know, we all know that you should get a colonoscopy when you turn 50. And when you're 45 or older, you should get a cognoscopy. You should know. Now, here's the thing. You're absolutely right. Um, this may cost you several hundred dollars or even a thousand dollars, but you're going to pay about a hundred times that for one year of nursing home. So the reality is, in fact, we're trying to keep people out of nursing homes. We're trying to make it so that, in fact, people can do well enough with their cognition so that they don't ever need a nursing home. So yes, we'd like it to be simpler. We'd like it to be more well covered. We'd like it to be uh, cheaper. We're working toward all of those, but you have to start somewhere. And remember, you know, this came from a test tube. We're looking for many, many years at what actually causes the decline. So you have to start somewhere. And in fact, we've had very nice results in hundreds of people. We just published a paper a few months ago um, showing 100 people with documented improvement in their cognitive scores. Some of them also had improvements in their quantitative EEGs or their MRI volumetrics or their evoked responses. So there's more and more evidence that, in fact, this can be very helpful. So are these people, so the, with the 100 that you tested, um, the mo I, I, I'm assuming it's one of your more recent um, cohorts, are they uh, in mild, do they have mild cognitive impairment, early stage Alzheimer's, or is this um, people who have not yet been diagnosed? This is all over the map from early to late. 
This was SCI, MCI, Alzheimer's, and late Alzheimer's. Do we have enough data right um, today to say that we can actually reverse these things? Well, what we can say, we never say we reverse Alzheimer's. We always say reversal of cognitive decline because to say you reverse Alzheimer's, you need an autopsy. We don't have that. Uh, we don't have that yet, thankfully. Uh, what we can say is that the cognitive decline reverses. And the big question, obviously, is, well, how often? If you're in the late stages, sometimes. If you're in the early stages, most of the time. If you're in the very, very early stages, virtually all the time. So we usually tell people, try to come in when you have SCI, which is subjective cognitive impairment, early stages. You know, the worst thing that happens then is someone says, oh, well, it's nothing to worry about. But uh, if, you're, you know, if you're in the earliest stages, you want to treat them. By the way, when people say, oh, don't worry, you've got memory problems, but it's not Alzheimer's. Well, you still have memory problems. <laughs> so you still need to be treating it. Whether or not it's Alzheimer's, you still want a better memory, of course. So you know, we're looking at people who have all causes of cognitive decline. And yes, the, the no question and no surprise, the ones who are very late stages are much harder to get improvements. So Dr. Bredesen, in your opinion, when should we start monitoring um, a lot of these factors that contribute to our overall brain health? Is it in our 20s? Is it 40s, 50s? I mean, you just made the point, it's better to get it before you enter a stage yeah. of decline. It's harder to reverse it. So when should we start looking and monitoring all of these things? Yeah, and by the way, same for cancer prevention. It's easier to prevent cancer than it is to treat it, no surprise. So you should start at 45, unless you have a family history of people who are actually getting symptoms before they're 45, in which case, yes, you wanna start before they're, at the age before their symptoms started. But in general, for most people, what we used to think of as a disease of your 60s, 70s, and 80s is really a disease, move it back by 20 years, it's really a disease of your 40s, 50s, and 60s because you're getting the major symptoms years after the pathophysiology starts. So we encourage anyone who's 45 years of age or older to get a cognoscopy and to look and see what are your inflammatory characteristics? Do you have a leaky gut? What is the status of your microbiome? Do you have deficiencies? Most of us have deficiencies of iodine, magnesium, potassium, vitamin D, things like that. Zinc, another big one. One billion people globally have a zinc deficiency. So it's incredibly common in our day and age to have these things that are suboptimal. And yeah, we can live with them for a while, but we do increase our risk for various diseases, including Alzheimer's. So um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you, you mentioned, um, you know, deficiencies. Um, how much of this, I mean, supplements is one thing. Are you a big believer in you are what you eat? So diet does play a big role in our brain health. I mean, you mentioned the microbiome, so the interaction between um, digestion and the brain. Um, what do we know about that today? What's proven and how much can we really control it? Right. That's a great question. So again, we're agnostic about what to use. We're simply trying to optimize your neurochemistry so that you can have optimal cognition. Now, one of the most naive things I've ever seen a doctor write came out a few months ago. A group of doctors said, there's no supplement that can improve cognitive decline. Well, this is like saying we've looked at each instrument and no instrument in the orchestra is the orchestra. Well, duh, of course not. But we now know that in fact, if you have suboptimal insulin sensitivity, you're at increased risk. You're not doing yourself any favors. If you have inflammatory components, that you're at risk and on and on and on. Hormones, all sorts of things. And in fact, there are supplements that can help to address all of these. So in fact, using them the right way, the right doses, the right targets with the right biochemistry, of course, why would we throw these out as part of the armamentarium? We want to use everything possible. This is a global emergency. We are going to bankrupt Medicare within about 15 years if we don't address this successfully. The, you know, the global burden of dementia is massive and is on the rise. 
So yes, of course, if you don't have optimal magnesium, of course you want to take a supplement or eat the appropriate foods. Now, when I was in medical school, there was one uh, course on, on nutrition and it was optional. You didn't have to take it. I took that course and I learned one thing, which is that vitamin C is thermolabile. That's what I learned in that course. So the reality is I, we were never taught how important this is. This is, as Jonathan Wright says, this is human biochemistry. This is how we work. And so when things go awry, we have a breakdown in our, in our networks, in our neuronal networks. Yes, we want to find out, is there a breakdown in our immune system? Is there a breakdown in our nutrition, in our hormones, in our trophic factors, infections we've been exposed to? toxins we're still burdened with. These things are all critical going forward. So yes, the, the idea, again, oversimplifying it and saying, oh, you just take this one thing that someone on TV told you to take and you're not going to get Alzheimer's. Of course, that's ridiculous. We all know that's snake oil. But to use everything at your disposal, including drugs, including supplements, including appropriate diet and lifestyle, including brain training, including certain stimulation, including stress reduction. This is our armamentarium. So we've been told that there is nothing that can be done to delay or reverse cognitive decline. And in fact, the answer is just the opposite. There are hundreds and hundreds of things that are critical, but you have to get the right things for the right person at the right time in the right doses. So this is something that is, you know, that, that, that is absolutely doable today. I, and I, I, um, I applaud you for putting the pieces together um, because I think in science that's not done enough. Um, looking at how systems, different systems relate to one another and risk factors. But sure. isn't part of the problem today is the way that, that um, research is funded and everybody's looking, you can get something funded if you're looking for that magic pill. I think part of the problem with the um, theories and hypotheses around things like lifestyle is the data isn't there really to support it because the money is not flowing into it. So I guess my question is, is, you know, what you say makes a lot of sense to me, but how much data do we have behind this to say that we're actually reversing these things? So in fact, there are, the data are increasing. You're exactly right though. If you wanted to set up a system to prevent innovation, the system would be peer review. So you'd get people who were experts in something and then you'd say, okay, you guys, should we fund this new crazy stuff or should we fund what you guys have always done? And what do you think they'd say? Of course, we wanna fund what we've always done. And that's exactly what's gone on. So if the funded research hasn't looked at some of these things that are critical. Having said that, What's happening? You're starting to see breakthroughs. Look at the finger trial out of Finland, looking at specific lifestyle changes. Now those people, to be fair, were people who were at high risk due to cardiovascular disease, blood pressure abnormalities, things like that. But still, it showed that in fact, you can have a preventive effect with a multifunctional approach. Um, we published our first paper showing the first examples of reversal of cognitive decline back in 2014. Um, and there are things that have been published since then. What are we hearing about the mind diet and about the Mediterranean diet, about ketogenic diet, all of these things? What are we hearing about exercise? Uh, what are we hearing about stress reduction? What are we hearing about brain training? Uh, brain HQ alone, there are over 160 publications that have supported this idea of brain training. Now, again, I would argue brain training without anything else might not be the optimal thing to do. It may be helpful or it may not but let's do it on the backbone of an optimal biochemistry, and that should give even better results. So this is systems medicine. It's precision medicine, just as you said, and it's beginning to come together, but you're right. There are a lot of people that are just holding fast to the old guard, the 20th century approach, which is you find the one thing that's the problem, and then you write a prescription for it, and then you see the next patient in seven minutes. And that is unfortunately not working for complex chronic illnesses, such as neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. 
So uh, we, we've gotten some questions asking, pe people asking, well, where do I go to get these type of assessments? So I want to ask this question in two parts. I know you've introduced the Bredesen protocol where you're actually training people. Um, I think only, is it only in the United States or does it go beyond the U.S.? Now we've trained uh, 1,500 physicians in 10 different countries and all over the U.S. So we okay. do have people in other countries that have changed. And actually the book is now out in 29 different languages so that you can look at this all over the world and in many different languages. You can, to get the, to get the access and the blood tests and things, you can go, as I said earlier, you can go to drbredison.com or you can go to mycognoscopy.com and to get these tests directly. Um, you can also get some training and the training has been in the past through Institute for Functional Medicine. We are now setting up some training that will be through Apollo Health. That's still a couple months away, um, but it will be training for people who are interested uh, in learning this sort of approach. This is a systems, I think of it instead of uh, precision medicine, this is really precision protocols or precision programs because yes, we're looking precisely at what's causing the problem, that set of things for each person, but we're not then just giving a standard medicine approach of a specific prescription, rather we're giving a specific program or protocol that takes into account those drivers of the problem. So I, I'm, I'm assuming now, you know, the, the protocol has been in place now for, um, uh, you know, quite a, how many years now has it been? You mentioned two, four, yeah. 2014, yeah. is that when you first started collecting data yeah. on that's people? When published, that's when we published the first paper. The very first patient I wrote about in the book, Patient Zero, came mm -hmm. to see me in April of 2012. And by the way, I just talked to her a couple of days ago. She's doing great. That's the most important part of all of this people who have improved, and that's not everybody, but people who have improved, stay improved because you are directing this at the cause of the problem. So people who experience improvement will keep their improvement. Now, interestingly, she's gone off the program several times, as I mentioned in the book. Each time was associated with cognitive decline once again. Each time she went back on, her cognition improved once again. And she was, just so, for people who haven't read your book yet, she was a um, diagnosed with uh, mild cognitive impairment. Was she diagnosed yet or early stage Alzheimer's? Yeah, she, she had MCI. And uh, she actually had, so she actually didn't have a diagnosis from her first doctor who just wrote memory problems. Her mother had died of Alzheimer's disease and she had significant problems. For example, she couldn't figure out where to get off on the freeway for even where she'd been hundreds of times before. So she was significantly affected. She couldn't remember the names of her pets. She couldn't remember where the light switch was, things like that. So she had some significant issues, but she did not have problems yet with activities of daily living. So you would, you would call that MCI. Having said that, the paper that we published recently had a number of people with full-blown Alzheimer's disease who showed documented improvement. So how are you documenting all this? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just imagining people in the traditional research world saying, great, Dr. Bredesen, but where's the data behind all of this? Like how many patients have you actually had studies on? Where, where does the, the data lie so that we, this could become actually more acceptable? I'm, I mean, yeah. you, you, you said, you know, we, we both talk, we talked earlier about how um, traditionally medicine looks at things in a, a quite a myopic way. What you're doing is you're bringing all the pieces together and saying, this is a treatment, it's a protocol. Yeah. So my question is, is um, how, I, I know you've published papers before, but how many people have actually been documented um, doing the Bredesen protocol and, and what are some of the results that you could share with us? Well, yeah, take a look at the hundred in the paper. We could go to, de to detail on the first three and then give a table that shows all the different improvements. So those are the documentations. Now, so there's a hundred people so far that you've really tested. Well, no, no, I mean, those, those are ones that we published recently. There are certainly more than that, and there are a few thousand people who are on this, over 3,000 people who are on the protocol. But you're right. In clinical practice, you don't get all the data that you'd like to get. People are out there, you know, doing this. So, in fact, interestingly, this started 2011. We proposed, based on our research, the first comprehensive trial for early Alzheimer's. And in fact, it was turned down by both the public and private IRBs that reviewed it because it was multivariable. So again, this is a problem where we're saying we wanna break the mold. 
we're now going to offer, instead of a single variable, you give drug or no drug, this is now going to be multivariable, program or no program. And so as you can imagine, that is difficult. So unfortunately, since 2011, we've had to make do with what we can do. Now, just recently, although we got turned down again in 2018 for this multivariable trial, it was approved in 2019. And so now we have started uh, the first trial that will get us some more data that you like. Now, having said that, remember, we gotta remember one thing. Nobody who just says, I don't believe this, is gonna believe it during my lifetime. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that. It's, that's, I'm not, no matter what we publish, it's not gonna change people's minds. And that's the history, you know, Planck uh, said that very famously, uh, you know, physics advances one funeral at a time. So the reality is nobody who makes their living on a competitive uh, you know, theory is going to change their minds during their or my lifetime. So that's not the goal here. The goal here is simply to show what's actually working. Um, as you know, Alzheimer's has become quite political. Um, and as they say, you know, the great triumph of politics uh, is uh, to make a lonely stranger of truth. So we're, we're just trying to gather some data here to show, and we've published data, we've published numerous papers on this, um, and it's not gonna change people's minds who are convinced of a different theory. However, we will continue and, and we, are, you know, we will continue. I, I would hope that ultimately there will be more support for these sorts of trials. And as you know, the, the, trial, the finger trial is essentially being, being replicated. So um, some have called this the middle finger trial. But in any case, it's a, it's a finger, you know, it's, it's replicating the finger trial in the United States. I'm not sure what that's going to prove. I think that people, you know, people in the United States and people in Finland both get cognitive decline. I don't think it's dramatically different. We'll see. Um, but in any case, uh, I think that, uh, you know, this is, I certainly agree with you that we need more data. Having said that, there are a lot of people out there. This is, you know, this is a desperation time. Um, you know, there's, there's something called compassionate use. If you've got a drug um, that doesn't, it hasn't been proven yet, but actually has some chance and you want to have compassionate use, why wouldn't we take a compassionate use approach to people with cognitive decline? So to, I, I like asking this question because, um, you know, I, I um, as I read the book, I, I, I left. I was left thinking, oh my God, there's so many things that I have to monitor that I'm not monitoring, right? So yes, take us through a picture of the life in times of, of Dale Bredesen. Um, what do you actually do to maintain your brain health? And what, what does that look like? Because for me, um, I was thinking, you know, I'm a healthy person. I, I run every day. Um, I eat very well. Um, and so because I'm not aware of deficiencies now, I'm a bit worried about my homocysteine since I'm um, talking to you. But, but yeah, you know, without that information, I'm probably less inclined to do more because I feel like I'm already healthy. So what does it look like from your perspective? What do you do in terms of diet and lifestyle? Um, and what do you monitor to make sure that your brain is the healthiest it, it could be? Yeah, and actually, I'm, I'm overdue for monitoring to determine where things stand. So that's a great point. But, um, you know, in general, I follow very similar. If you look at uh, chapter four in the book, I wrote about what you can do to give yourself Alzheimer's. So I try to do the opposite of that. Uh, and so, yes, I absolutely try to get eight hours of sleep at night. Um, my wife and I adhere to, you know, try to stick to close to this Keto Flex 12 free diet. We typically go 12 to 16 hours. She does window eating. Um, which makes it so that she has within about an eight hour stretch her food during the day. Um, having said that, you know, you think things happen. We, we go on trips um, and it's not always easy to do the right things. Um, so, yeah, a plant rich, uh, mildly ketogenic diet. Um, try to get some exercise, um, whether through hiking, whether through cross country machine, whether through jogging, whether through what have you, any of those things. I think that's critical. Um, try to keep stress to a minimum, uh, which is another another big one. And some people like things like, uh, you know, neural agility. I, I, I like that one myself, but other people like transcendental meditation or other things. Um, and then uh, and then some brain training. And actually, most of that for me is, uh, you know, putting together lectures and going in and you know, writing the next book. And I'm, I'm finishing up the next book right now. 
which actually is about these survivors. And we have, um, we have five different stories of survivors and they talk exactly about what they did, you know, how they were told they had Alzheimer's, what they did about it um, and how they turned around and how they're doing today. And I think that's a really interesting to see it from the horse's mouth, to hear it from the horse's mouth. What actually did you do to get better? And is this, is this crazy? Is it, as you said, is it possible? Uh, and then uh, I do take some supplements. Um, you know, I, I actually turned out to have some, uh, some thyroid issues. Uh, and so um, I actually take some thyroid for that. Uh, I actually had some leaky gut issues. Um, I take some probutyrate for that. Um, I take probiotics and prebiotics. Um, I actually think high fiber is really important. It's important for detox. It's important for your cholesterol. It's important for your insulin sensitivity. So I actually take supplemental fiber in addition to eating a relatively high fiber diet. Um, I use filtered water. I use uh, non-emollient soap um, after inducing sweating through exercise or through sauna. Um, because you are, as has been shown many times, you are dealing with specific toxins that you want to uh, remove from your body. This is all part of 21st century medicine. And I look forward to the day when it is considered standard in medical schools. So I, I just wanted to follow up a little bit about the ketogenic diet. Um, we've had um, a nutritional scientist um, by the name of Ed Blondes um, on this program um, talking about, you know, um, ketones being a possible um, al alternate fuel for your brain. We know glucose crosses the brain blood barrier as we age, that glucose supply declines. So is the reason why you're taking ketones, is it to boost uh, the energy supply to your brain? So this is a great point. And, and here's the thing. When you look at any one of these things, people always want to have one thing to hang their head on. Oh, it must be because of this. In fact, it's not that simple. You've got to look at, does the biochemistry make sense? Does the epidemiology, does the clinical outcome, all that. So as you know, uh, Stephen Kinane has done beautiful work looking at the ability to use ketones for fuel. And if you basically check all the boxes, Yes, the most important thing here is ketones have been shown to provide support for the brain and seem to improve cognition as we age. So that, you know, the biochemistry and the clinical work all check out together. And in fact, I'm not, this is not to say that you can only use ketones. And in fact, we recommend, as many do, cycling in and out of ketosis about once a week or so. But having ketones somewhere in the range of one to four millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate, and that's what's come up again and again, great. If you can check it, that's great. But you don't necessarily have to do that. Then that does seem to be associated with improved cognition. And again, it's not one thing by itself, but it's on the background of looking at the appropriate things. Remember, we're taking a very complex machine, your brain, and we're now kicking it back into gear by getting rid of the things that are taking it out of gear and then getting all of the appropriate signals to your brain to say, no, you are not being insulted anymore. You are in fact in a growth mode and you can go ahead and feel free to make and keep new connections. And yes, ketones are part of that. Okay, so um, just to, to sum it up here, uh, is it fair to say that um, today we, we know enough to know that we can prevent cognitive de decline. We can certainly kick the can down the road, um, but we can't really cure it, right? So we're not at the point where we can say, if we employ all of these things, it's a guarantee that we'll never get Alzheimer's. Is that correct? Almost. Um, first of all, there's no guarantee, and it's gonna be a while before there's a guarantee. What we can say is, for the first time, we can prevent and reverse cognitive decline, but not necessarily in every single person. We know that we do better the earlier you come in, and the more that we can identify things that are treatable. So I encourage everyone to get on prevention or early reversal. And that's as close as we can get to a guarantee right now. However, this is a dramatic difference than where we were just a few years ago, and where many people still claim we are, which is to say, we don't know what causes it and there's nothing you can do about it. When is it too late? 
Well, we've had people, as I mentioned in the paper, who have MOCA scores of zero, that's Montreal Cognitive Assessment, scores of zero who have improved, but they are the exceptions, not the rules. So again, we can't give you a hard and fast rule and say it can't happen. And we have heard repeatedly someone say, oh yes, my father or mother's in a nursing home, they're really far along, we started this and wow, they're clearly better, but they're not back to normal. So in fact, it's not ever necessarily too late, but you have diminishing returns over time, diminishing likelihood of improvement, and you have to do more to see the improvement. So one of the things we're working on is when you get some improvement in a late stage and now you plateau, what will take you to a higher plateau? Do you need now stem cells? Do you need intranasal trophic factors? Do you need specific immunological peptides? What is it that you need to take you to that next step? You know, a lot of what we've done over the years is to say, if we don't figure the answer to this, what is the person going to think of that we didn't think of when the person in the future solves this problem? So we wanna take out all the stops, pull out all the stops and ask, what are all the things that are potentially available to improve us? Okay, well, Dr. Bredesen, thanks so much for your time. I know this is um, an area of interest to a lot of people. Um, it gives people hope to think that there are things that we can do to improve our brain health um, and you know, perhaps pre pre prevent Alzheimer's disease. Um, thank you for your time. Um, we wish you all the luck on um, your continued research. Um, I'm sure People may have more questions. Um, if you do, please post them on our Facebook page. Um, how do people find out more about um, the protocol aside from buying the book, The End of Alzheimer's? Um, what, what, what's your suggestion to them? Yeah, go on drbredison.com. And I would encourage people to talk to someone who's been on the protocol and showed improvement. Uh, and, and shown improvement. And we've got, as I say, we've got uh, several stories from these people uh, coming up. Uh, also a documentary uh, being done by NHK in Japan um, about these, about the protocol and about people who showed improvement. So I think it's helpful just to see what they did uh, and uh, to talk you know, face to face to someone who's been through this. Great, thank you so much. And if you missed any of this talk and um, want to watch it in its entirety, please go to um, beingpatient.com. We always post these interviews. Um, aside from um, having them on our social media channels, you can also post um, a comment if we didn't cover something you're interested in and we'll make sure Dr. Bredesen gets it. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Bredesen. We really appreciate it and um, sharing with us your research. Thank you, Deborah. thanks very much. Take care. Take care.